0: Episode 73 with current Sacramento Kings assistant coach Roy Rana is brought to you by Good Light Clothing and Parkside Brewery.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Hoop's Journey getting on a plane going, well, I don't know where he is right now, but we're going out east but uh, he's working out west these days. You probably know the name if you are in the world of Canadian basketball and coaching. Uh, A man who has a true hoops journey, continued to keep his nose to the grindstone and work and learn the game and develop and found himself currently with the uh, Sacramento Kings, all the way from Eastern Commerce to Ryerson, worked with Canada many, many times. And we're super thrilled to have none other than Mr. Roy Rana with us today. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Excited to, to have a conversation. Yeah, you as well. Good to reconnect as we talked offline a, a lot of hairlines ago for both of us where we yeah. <laughs> crossed paths and we lost you in uh, in the C- Canada Games. But uh, some fun experiences and I was super young coach at that time. So I was just sitting back, soaking all that in, watching some really high level guys play hoops. And um, it's fun to just connect again and, and uh, get to know more about you. So how's things with you? Obviously, season around the corner, coming off the Olympics did you give yourself any time to relax or was it uh, land and on to the next one?
2: Uh, you know, it's, it's the last couple of weeks have been good. You know, I've been able to kind of just sit back and kind of clear my mind a little bit. It's been a busy summer. And uh, so, you know, really just kind of trying to settle and look forward. But uh, yeah, it's it's been good. It was a grind. It was a grind of a summer for sure. Being in Tokyo and, and being in Germany and all around Europe
1: for a few months so it's nice to get a break for sure yeah you know we get to see the instagram posts and the tweets and the the pictures that someone set up to make it look real nice but it is tough hopping on planes off and on and but i mean again such amazing experiences for you i'm sure that you're will probably still even take time to process oh yeah
2: absolutely i mean you know i'm doing things i never ever dreamt that i would do so it's always a little surreal but uh, at the same time, you know, once you get on the ground and you, you get your feet on the court, it's, it's basketball and you just go after it again. And uh, uh, it's been uh, it's been a phenomenal ride and, um, you know,
1: just uh, appreciative, lots of gratitude, loving it. Love to hear those words. And basketball is a beautiful game. And and one of the coolest things that I saw throughout that Tokyo experience was you and that picture with uh the guy from ottawa right just the how basketball can come full circle it's such a weird thing and such so many like so many cool things can happen um if you just keep working hard and treat people the right way you know and i thought that was a very powerful photo not only for for youtube but also for canada basketball as a whole and just see what you know the the product that's happening in canada between the x's and o's and the players and that was a very powerful photo i'm sure you felt the same
2: yeah well you know what more than anything i just felt really good for caleb agada You know, um, those Ottawa U teams gave us a lot of heartache for many years before we figured them out. And Caleb was a huge part of that. And I would tell you that when I was coaching at Ryerson and Caleb was playing at Ottawa, we we weren't, you know, we weren't friends. That's for sure. You know, we (laughs) were, uh, we were rivals. And obviously I was very respectful to all the players and their student athletes, but, you know, it was, it was a pretty serious rivalry. So for us to get a chance to meet there and it just to be so warm and and really just celebrating each other and this incredible experience. I mean, he's had just an insane summer, you know, just the moment that he had playing the U S and then he had another amazing moment in the, in the summer league And, and obviously, you know, representing Nigeria in the Olympics is pretty special for him. So it was a really, really nice moment and just shows you that, you know, you can be rivals, but, uh, it's, it's not about that. You know, it's really about a community. And it was, I thought it was a really nice moment for, for us being from the same youth sport community, a Canadian community. It was a special moment. It's a photograph I'll always cherish for sure.
1: And let's get into it. You talk about community. Tell us about yourself as a young person and your community, where you grew up and sort of when you knew basketball was becoming a, you know, a love for you in your life and something that you really wanted to pursue, whether it was playing, coaching, whatever it was. Oh, uh,
2: well, you know, I, I grew up in downtown Toronto in the West End the city. and uh, Probably for those of you that are you know, familiar with Toronto, it's a half an hour up, you know, away from, from Young and Bloor. So it's, it's pretty close. It's, you know, you can, you can walk there. You know, I, uh, you know, spent almost all my life in that neighborhood in the neighborhood that I was born into. And, um, you know, played some high school ball, played middle school ball coming up. Uh, Really fell in in love with the game in elementary school when I saw a picture of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in my phys ed class. Uh, We had a poster of him, uh, you know, up on the wall and just the goggles and the sky hook. And it just looked so like, it just just looked kind of alien almost. And just, and then I saw, you know, I watched some clips of him on on the sports, uh, you know, the evening sports and it just kind of, he just fascinated me. And um, he was the one who hooked me into the game and and uh, I became a Laker fan at a really young age, you know, those Showtime Lakers with Magic and Worthy and Kareem and all those, and kind of fell in love with, with basketball that way and, and remained a fan and obviously played some ball coming up. But uh, when I was done playing high school, you know, I played five years of high school, had a great experience in high school, but we weren't a power in Toronto by no means. We weren't a league program. When I left high school, I, you know, I kind of thought that was it for basketball for me. And But I always had this little inkling to coach. I I worked in parks and recreation in the city of Toronto in the summers, coached a little soccer, and was you know loved being around young people, even though I was young myself. And uh, but but never really thought it would be a part of my life in any real meaningful way. I went to York and did an undergraduate degree in international relations. you know, thought about going into the foreign service. I have been mean, thought about a lot of different things that were, you know, my, one of my passions even till this day is just looking at foreign policy, looking at what's happening globally. Uh, those are things that I still have a very keen interest in. And um, it was something that for me was unfortunately, academically, I wasn't disciplined enough to kind of access it that way. While I was in university, I started working in the shelter system in Toronto. So I started working with uh, hard-to-serve kids and kids on the street, you know, I was a youth worker at Covenant House right in the downtown core. That really opened up my eyes. That was a pretty powerful experience. Did that for a number of years, but while I was doing that, I I pursued a a degree in education. So, I kind of tilted towards that. And, you know, when I graduated, because I had this background in working with homeless youth and and hard-to-serve youth and at-risk youth, the job that I got, and pretty competitive, applied for a job to run a program in the Jane and Finch corridor, which is one of the more challenging neighborhoods in Toronto. And my my first job in education was to uh, at that time was called the Alternative to Expulsion program. So basically, um, you know, I was hired to reintegrate kids that were expelled from the school board most of the time for violence related issues. And my job was to kind of bring them into my classroom and help them reintegrate back into the system. So when I, when I applied for the job and I got the job, the superintendent, and I've shared this story a number of times, said, hey, you know what, uh, would you be willing to, you know, lend a hand in extracurricular activities? And you know, this is in the mid-90s. And at that point in time, the culture and education was every teacher did more than just their job. It, you know, volunteering and after-school activities, whether that was in drama or sport or music, whatever, that was just part of the job. So you know, I, I just said, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'm happy to help in any way I can the program that i was running was not housed in a high school which in an administrative building but the high school closest to me was a high school called cw Jeffries. the superintendent basically asked me if i would be willing to help you know coach teams at cw Jeffries, and i said yeah you know i said well what can you coach and i said well you know i think i could help out with soccer and help out with basketball play a little basketball and I said great i'll be in touch and then the next day he called he said uh, you're going to be the basketball coach at cw Jeffries." So I was appointed by our superintendent to be the basketball coach at CW High school, I, the junior team. I wasn't a senior team coach and uh, I walked into the uh, building. My first experience as I walked into building, there was a, there was a fight and a little bit of a commotion and, and uh, something dropped out of one of the kids' pockets. Let's put it that way. And I grabbed it and grabbed the kid and brought him to the office and everybody in the, School thought that I was a police officer. That was their first. They didn't even know who I was. Yeah, yeah. So my, the first thing that I did was I had a, an incident that I had to deal with. Went to the office, and then from there walked into the gym, and basically told the kids that I was a basketball coach. And uh, so it was kind of an interesting start. <laughs> uh, we probably had fifty kids trying out in that gym, and I would say twenty to twenty-five of them could dunk. Like it was yeah. crazy athletic talent in the gym, and in, in, in a real, like I said, a real inner-city high school. And uh, that started the journey. You know, I I didn't really, you know, have a lot of background. I didn't really have a lot of, you know, a mentor or anything like that at that time. I had to figure it out. And um, we had a lot of success my first year. We won a title in my first year. And then it just kind of took off from there. Um, And I had six incredible years at CW Jeffries before I left and went to Eastern Commerce, where we were in one of the powers in North York, uh, which was the toughest league by far in the country. It was the Tri-City League. It was North York, Etobicoke and um oh geez i'm forgetting about the other borough now city of york and the teams in those like usually top 10 in the province six to eight of them were coming from those three boroughs so that was our league we had to we had to come out of that league it was incredible it was incredible the the quality of basketball the coaches the players so many legendary names came out of that league that was my kind of introduction to the toronto
1: high school scene under fire hey like that's pretty crazy the thing that i've always found is interesting no matter who we've interviewed on this is uh there's always been something that has sort of set it off, whether it's a phone call or bumping into someone or a superintendent just basically saying, hey, look, uh, you're coaching and <laughs> all right, well, I better figure this out because I need some employment, right? And then it goes into just growing the love of the game, which is, I, I think, amazing and, and exactly why we do this show. So people know more about where did Roy Rana actually get into coaching and and just interesting to touching already on kind of you know us being a majority so far, West Coast sort of podcast, but trying to expand out and just the difference in styles of basketball throughout the provinces. Right. And especially, you know, in the city where, where you're dealing with talking about guys like, you know, half the guys trying out can, you know, armpit the rim. Right. So whereas, you know, out here, you know, we've got a couple of kids that are maybe throwing down some dunks and, but we can throw it in the post and we got some, some stiff six, six guys. Right. But uh, it's interesting, right. A different, different flavor for sure. Why the change? Why did you move over? Um, was it just an opportunity you could, couldn't say no to? How does it work out there? How does one, are you still teaching at this point? How does one make that move over? Um, um, cause it's interesting, you know, cause we know yeah. what happens here in our, you know, in our diff- different districts and things. And how do you move and make that that choice?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if it's still the same now, but um,
1: come on now, you're not that old.
2: Well, no, I mean, it's just the way education works more than
1: anything else, right? The
2: system has changed. But um, when I, uh, you know, I spent uh, I think four years in, in the alternative expulsion program and built that program to a place where it was, it was humming. It was it was it was achieving a lot of its objectives. But it, it was you know my, my goal was always to be in the mainstream. Right? I wanted to, I wanted to, to teach more kids. I always had small groups. You know, twelve students, eight students. It was very kind of intensive. So at an op- opportunity, uh, and I think much of it through my coaching as well to kind of move into Jeffries as a full time teacher. So at first I made that transition and I taught English, I taught history, I taught, taught phys ed. And, um, so I had a chance to kind of get into the mainstream and, and, and learn to be a teacher that way. You know, along my journeys as a basketball coach, you know, I got to meet uh, a legendary figure in Toronto basketball, a guy named Lucy Altus, who was at Eastern Commerce for 35 years and was the backbone of that program. Pretty well involved with every elite player in the, in, in the city at that time. and uh, He kind of really liked what I was doing. And, you know, we would, we would often talk, I was always very curious. So I would ask him about what they did in the program and how they built the program. And we built a little bit of a relationship and uh, they were trying to hire a new head of phys ed, for their phys ed department. And um, he recruited me. He recruited me to, to apply for that position. So I left as a teacher uh, of multiple subjects at CW Jeffries and went to Eastern Commerce as the, the head of the phys ed department. And um, really my intention was not to coach. Uh, right away, my intention was to kind of learn the program, learn my job, and then give, you know, then hopefully at some point in time, coach coach one of the teams. And it just kind of turned out that uh, it was just so many things happened within the first month that I was there that uh, I ended up coaching the team. It just kind of fell into my lap. Lots of drama, lots of challenges. Yeah, so I went there, and, and bang, all of a sudden, I'm, you know, in in some ways – leading the one of the most legendary programs in in Ontario and in the city. So it was it was a pretty daunting task right away, right off the bat. uh, But that's the way it happened. You know, it was just uh, being me being recruited to take over a department. And obviously, you know, because of my uh, my history as a coach in high school up until that point in
1: time. But, you know, I never saw it taking on the, the shape that it did. Getting to Eastern Commerce there for young coaches that listen to this what were you doing to get yourself feeling now you, you talked about you played the game a little bit and but we all know there's a difference between playing and actually trying to deliver content to kids on the court right so what did you do as a young coach to make sure that you were comfortable and getting more and growing and i'm sure you know growth mindset i'm sure you feel like even to this day you're still growing but yeah. starting out i'm sure there's a few days you're like all right okay you know yeah. what are we doing yeah, I, here? But, is it clinics? Is it reaching out to your contacts? Just learning, reading, well, all of it. You know, I think I think there's
2: all of that, right? I mean, it's it's clinics and clinics have taken on a very different kind of shape now, right? Everything's online. You don't really have to go to clinics. But back then, sure, you know, the Nike clinics were big and they, they were almost entertaining, right? You got a chance to listen to some guys and tell stories and meet some other people and pick up some things, and you know, so those were those were beneficial for sure. know but i I would i was always kind of really invested in learning so certainly reading and watching and asking i didn't have a real network base i didn't really have a mentor coach i didn't have a lot of coaches that i could go to and watch practice and so i I had to build that up over time but probably the thing that i did that i would suggest any uh young coach was i never stopped coaching Mm -hmm. so while i was coaching at jeffrey's i was coaching club teams i started my own club Uh, in the summer times i was coaching in Ontario basketball's development program. I started MDP and then I did JDP. And those were programs that we had that fed into our provincial program. I would tell you that probably in my career up until this point in time, I don't know, last summer might've been the only summer in my career that I have not coached a team in the summer. So I've all, I was always coaching teams. So I had never had any summer holiday. I never had a break. I didn't go to the cottage for a month or you know, I, I didn't, that was just never what I did. I just always coached. So, you know, I'd, I'd get another opportunity, I'd get on the court and start working. So a lot of it was very hands-on. I would say that's probably been, now it evolved over time, obviously, but at that point in time, uh, probably my greatest uh, impact for learning was the fact that I was just always coaching. I was always just trying to figure it out. I was always getting on the court, and succeeding or
1: failing. And I think too, as young coaches, like, I think we have this thing about before we really learn, because we're still learning about who we are, you know, when we're in our early twenties. Right. And so, you know, you get a loss and you think it's reflective of you and you have to learn how to work through that and how to get your kids to buy in. Like there's so many things that we're trying to figure out and then getting to the point where you think you have it figured out, but then you don't because you want to keep growing and learning. Right. So I think that's, that's, that's good stuff. And it's so true. Hey, the clinics are just wild nowadays. Like you don't even, I hope we can go back to Vegas cuz you know there's more more than just basketball there's nothing like losing craps at the same table as Roy Absolutely. Williams you know sure. <laughs> That's another podcast though Absolutely yeah <laughs> Everybody knows or they should know kind of just the dominance that you had at, at Eastern Commerce right five titles I mean, your record is crazy. Talk about that time there, some of the experiences you went on, stepping into that program, knowing that there's, holy smokes, this is where I'm at. What did you do to make sure that that legacy of that program continued to to be a powerhouse and some of the great memories and moments? I mean, I'm sure you still hold them, you know, in, in high regard to this day. Yeah. Well, I would tell you that, I mean,
2: the first thing that happened when
1: I took over that program
2: was massive failure. You know, mm-hmm. I, uh, my first season there was my hardest season in coaching by far. Like I said, there was a lot of issues and there was a lot of, uh, it was contentious when I came, it was contentious that I took over the program. Um, a lot of people didn't believe that I was the right guy to do it, that I was, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't have the playing background. I didn't have you know, I hadn't won a title as a coach other than the junior title that I won in my first year, although I had built a top 10 program, you know, that was the, you know, Rolls Royce, the gold standard for Toronto basketball at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, it was a lot of pressure. It was a lot of challenge. You know, I had some players who really bought in and I had some players who did not, but I actively went about what I believe was going to be you know my vision for that program and made a lot of changes in year one. We, we turned over the roster and I hate to say that because it's, it's high school, but You know, we had some academic issues. We had some guys who had been there a long time, but we had younger players that were better and we rewarded those younger players. And then probably I brought in a lot of great community people as well. I had some great teachers that worked with me. One specifically was kind of like, you know, it was a partnership between the two of us. So started to kind of build out the structure of the program. And then in year one, we lost in the city championship game to our arch rival Oakwood on a, on a uh, buzzer beater in double overtime and Oakwood stalled because we had no shot clock. Oakwood stalled for the whole second overtime of uh of that game, of that championship game until they got one shot. So they stalled, took one shot and hit a crazy buzzer beater and beat us and went on to offset to entire championship. So that was a devastating loss for, for me personally. And then I took a year off. The next year I had a four over five, I took a year off. I traveled the world. I got a chance to kind of really reflect came back and um just put my head down kept working again and uh, we had some really really good young talent we had some really really good young players but what i think more so that was we really provided some structure in the program so we started to run the same stuff that we were running in our that our senior team we would run with our you know our grade nine team. like we we had staples that we ran throughout the program you know we really tried to intentionally make it a program we really started to track academically what we needed to do to get all the guys on track to be NCAA eligible or eligible to play in the CIS. So we, we spent a lot of, not just on the X's and O's, but on the, you know, how do we, how do we develop an NCAA player? How do we develop a, a university player in, in Canada? You know, what kind of things are we doing in player development? Um, how are we using technology, film, scouting? Like we dove into every aspect that we could to try and take the program to another level. And that was really our, so that was really our, uh, our intention. it was uh, it, it really worked out. I mean, we just we started running like this incredible program, and the winds just started to roll. The winds just started now we we had one real advantage at Eastern that I don't think most people um, realize is we had a tiny, tiny gym. If anybody was to walk into that gym, I think they would be completely blown away to say, this is the best program in the country or one of the best programs in the country plays in this gym. We had no three point line on the sidelines because the gym was too small. The length of the court was less than, for most regulation gyms, slightly more than a half court. We never, played a, we never played a playoff game on our home court in the 10 years that I was there because it wasn't an official court. So we always played any meaningful games that we needed to play. we would been in a neutral site or play on the road. So we never got a chance to win a championship on our home court. But what it did do is we were in such a small, tight space that it breeded tremendous physicality and energy and uh intensity and we were able to really ramp up that kind of i'd say again that intensity you know that competitive intensity was really really special in that gym uh, a lot of great players came through that so i think in some ways just that space was our secret as well it really was uh uncommon it was we did not have any type of an advantage from a facility perspective at all we were, we were a hundred year old building with a tiny little gym that most, you know, would be like a middle school gym is what we were working with. So spent a lot of time kind of really, uh, you know, building out the program and then obviously getting better as coaches, but, you know, also blessed with tremendous talent. I mean, we would, uh, we would draw kids from all over the city. We would have kids that would come in, you know, on their bikes from an hour, hour and a half away to try and. You know, make our team and uh, we were an open enrollment school so we would we, we could take anybody we were under enrolled for most of the time that i was there we just had kids come from everywhere you know, we were really a unique place because you know the toronto is a, uh, you know i don't know if they change the language now but th- there's a lot of priority neighborhoods in the city and and typically you know those priority neighborhoods kind of stay to themselves they don't they don't mix very often and we were one of the very few places in the city where kids would come from all over the city And there were no issues. Basketball, you know, brought everybody together. So it was lots of powerful stories
1: for sure and tremendous win. Yeah. And just the way you described the facility, like, I'm sure there was probably hundreds of gyms in in the province that would, you know, are close to college level style. Right. And you see, you know, you have your gym with every reason to be like, well, you know, we can't pull it off in here because we don't even have a sideline three point shot and we never get to play home games. But not dwelling on all that, just trying to make the best of the situation that you're in. And next thing you know, kids are coming from all over. I mean, that's reminding me of like Saint Anthony style kind of. Yeah, well, you know? it
2: was. It was. Uh, I would tell you that if uh, anybody's read that book, it was a very similar story. We had we had wooden backboards, we had brick walls. <laughs> uh, when you sat on the bench as the coach, your feet were on the court, and that was the reality. That's that's what
1: we played in our home gym, you know, and uh, it was a really really special place. For those that don't know, Miracle of Saint Anthony, great book strongly recommend at what point are you thinking all right time to move on post secondary was it something that you going from the situation where you're in this is what's interesting is you kind of like superintendent says hey you're coaching when does it realize and you start to identify yourself as a coach obviously you're a teacher coach and you're you know you're giving back and you're still in the classroom but when at what point are you thinking to yourself okay this is something that I want to pursue as as a career
2: uh, you know, I always saw myself as a coach. It was always a little tormented because I always saw myself as a coach and I always felt a little bit guilty of myself as a teacher because I didn't necessarily, you know, and I was a teacher coach and I was a high school teacher and a lot of the lessons that I learned in the classroom spilled over into, you know, onto the court, but I wanted to be on the court. Like I, that's what I wanted to do. You know, that's what I couldn't wait to do. I couldn't wait for school to end so that just like the kids were, you know, itching to get to practice. I was itching to get to practice as well. And, uh, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, I, I just, it was time, it was time for me to move and it was time for me to give myself another challenge. And it was time for me to be fair to the, to the kids that I was teaching. You know, it was just a question of what kind of opportunity or if that opportunity would arise. So, you know, everywhere I've gone, I've, I've kind of known when my life when my life cycle in that place is, or in that situation has, you know, it's time, you know, we all have that kind of feeling inside when, you know, it's time for a change. After nine years at Eastern, almost a decade at Eastern, I knew it was time. And uh, fortunately for me, the opportunity at Ryerson came up. I was not the first choice. I got kind of lucky. Uh, you know, I, the first choice decided not to do it. And they came to me and it was another great 10 years. I mean, I just had an incredible experience there as well. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, my, my time at Eastern was incredible. It was, it was exhausting.
1: I mean, we, we worked hard. Like, it, was, it was 24-7. We never stopped. You feel like a college program, even at times, like the amount of games and traveling and just the exposure and like, it must've felt almost kind of that same feel.
2: Oh, I mean, we, we went, we went to the U S numerous times. We were in Africa, we were in Europe. We were doing exposure events all over the world. We were hosting exposure events. We were you know, running coaching clinics. We were doing I had an AU program going at the same time so that my players could express themselves on this. Like we were, it was a, all-encompassing 24 7 12 months a year program that's what we were running we were fundraising huge amounts of money to travel I mean, we were rolling we were rolling as you know we were you know i would say we were comparable to what any prep school is doing now mm-hmm. um you know but for them it's just they're doing it you know a lot of it of the sport has become privatized now we were we for us it wasn't privatized you know we were doing it as a traditional high school um and we were doing it as volunteer coaches. You know, we never made any money doing it. We just did it because we had this incredible passion to try and build this program and and have our players, um, you know achieve their dreams. And we sent a lot of players into post-secondary, um, and we won a lot of games, but I think those stories are equally as powerful. So yeah, it was it was it was a lot. I was wiped out. <laughs> I was a little bit burnt out, and I needed to change.
1: And, and you didn't have to leave the province to do it, you know, I mean, especially at the U sport level, kind of jobs that are on our radar, few and far between, like you talked about, like, would a job come up and what it would look like, you know, am I going to have to yeah. move to, to Lethbridge or yeah. is it, you not you're not even first choice. I just think it's, it's kind of ironic, right? It's funny how things really work out for people and, you know, some great runs with the program there, a couple silver medals, some big wins over Carlton. I remember watching you guys when you came in that amazing UBC game round one, where, you know that was wild. Um, talk about kind of stepping into Ryerson basketball when Carlton's, you know, it right and yeah. and taking what you've learned and, and building the program there or continuing to build the program. Another new challenge for you. I love it. You're so stoic, man. It's like yeah,
2: yeah. No, I I, I would tell you that I would tell you this. Like I uh, one, you know, I didn't even think I'd be a university coach because uh, I think there was a bias at the time against high school coaches. I'm sure to some degree it may still exist. You know, I had applied for other jobs in other parts of the province and outside of the province and, and never really had any real serious kind of interest, even though we were smashing records, yeah. you know, at the high school level, we were winning, you know, we were we were we were coaching some real talent. We were coaching at a high
1: level. Was that frustrating for you or was it just
2: not not really. It was just, you know, I I, I kind of knew what I was up against and yeah, yeah. For me Ryerson was just this kind of jewel sitting there in the city and you know, downtown Toronto and had been underperforming for so long just kind of seemed like the perfect fit. And when the job came up and I applied, you know, I, I think my reputation in the city was what got me the interview and got me in the process. And then I was fortunate, right? Some things went my way. And like most things, you get a little lucky. And so, you know, when I got the job, you have to understand when I got the job, like Eastern commerce was bigger than any CIS program in in the city. Eastern commerce was, as far as the grassroots level is concerned, Eastern was way bigger than, than CIS sport, really. It was just what it was. At that time in high school ball. So when I came to Iris, and I wasn't looking at like, okay, that, you know, Carlton, I was looking at, okay, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to replicate this? And uh, one of the first things that I did was I went to Ottawa and I started recruiting in, in Ottawa. I started recruiting guys that were traditionally untouchable, not because, uh, you know, I necessarily thought I was going to be able to get them, but I wasn't going to back down. I wasn't going to like, like, concede that some part of the country or the province or a particular school had you know jurisdiction over a particular area of talent that i wasn't going to do that i was going to compete right from day one and it took time but fortunately for me that first recruiting class of you know jamal jones and and bjorn michelson out of quebec and jordan Gauthier out of windsor we just we got some guys that really were really impactful right away and helped change that program quickly and you know, in my third season, we went to Nationals and the, the program had only been to Nationals once in its history. Uh, we won our first game in my third season at Nationals and we just started to roll from there. I mean, we really, you know, we had a very clear vision again of what we were trying to build and how we were going to play. And we were relentlessly committed to that. And it wasn't just myself as a coach, it was our players, it was our staff, it was everyone. You know, fortunately, we won some big games and it kind of flipped. We started to believe in ourselves, you know, that confidence, we got that swagger. and it was a great run. It was a great one. You know, I mean, we came so close. We were a possession away from winning a national championship. We won, you know, a few Ontario championships. We were in, you know, two national champions. Like we had a great run, you know, we didn't win it all, but for that decade that I was there, I could, you know, very proudly say that we
1: were one of the best programs in the country for sure. Absolutely. You've talked a lot about culture and sort of vision. I'm I'd love that stuff. Huge how do you relay that culture and vision? Is it, is it verbal? Is it through things on t-shirts? Do the guys get a book? Do they come up with it? Is it a collaborative process? Like how do you, yeah. you know, cause it's important. It's important. I think, especially with today's athletes, um, they need to understand, you know, especially at the high school level, that 12th man or, or woman, this is why we need you. You know, they don't connect to just being part of a team anymore you know, it's like they connect it to almost minutes, right? And so how how do you, as a coach go about getting culture and vision across the board? Well, I tell you, I've gotten better
2: at it over time, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I, I think um, but poor but poor a poor. lot of it is a lot of it is is you know storytelling, use of words. Sometimes it's about putting it on a t-shirt. But I think the biggest thing is living it, right? really mm-hmm. trying to define it and then living it. I mean, there's a lot of programs that put stuff on t-shirts mm-hmm. and put things on walls and and they lose a ton of games because, it doesn't really mean anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So whatever that vision is, whatever that culture is that you define, you know, how do you live that? You know, how do the behaviors of your culture reflect it? And, uh, we found a way to you know, identify it and then be very committed to it and have our, have our players be committed to it and then also start to live it and and teach it and pass it on. And it became tradition, and, you know, all of those things. And it was, it was very definable. You know, you could have asked any of our athletes, you know, well, You know, what is it that makes you guys, you know, Ryerson or Eastern and how do you play? And they would have been able to define it. They would have been able to talk about it. So I think it is very intentional. And I've talked about culture on a number of different podcasts and clinics and stuff like that. It's something that I love because I think it's it's really cool when you can kind of craft a story and then see if you can make that story a reality. So, again, I, I would tell you that, you know, at Ryerson, you know, right off the bat, I had a vision of the type of athlete that I wanted to recruit. You know, I wanted to recruit the kid that I had at Eastern that most people in CIS at the time didn't believe were were students. They just believed that they were basketball players. And I wanted to create some incredible stories of academic success from kids that came from the neighborhoods and the communities that I coached in as a high school coach. So I was very intentional in trying to recruit that type of athlete. And I was also very intentional in trying to build that type of staff. And then, you know, we wrapped around it the way that we wanted to play. The toughness that we wanted to play with, and then the commitment of you know what we wanted to be, and it was it was great. And It evolved; it changed over time for sure. But it was always something that I think was always a strength of our program. Uh, everywhere I've gone, really. I mean, in Jeffries, I was still trying to figure it out. But from that point on, even even when I was in national teams, even when I've done the world team at the Hoops Summit, every time I've touched court, every time I've had a team, whether whether it's a short prep, long prep, short season, long season. We've always had a very
1: definable culture, or at least an identity. We tried to, we tried to commit to every team that I've had. And I think you make a good point. I think it's important that it does change. Like I, going into my 19th year of a high school coach, if I'm still have the same vision and culture that I did in 2000, whatever, like there's some elements, but also kids have changed and athletes have changed. So you know what I mean. I think it's important that you allow that change to happen and and be and grow within that. So that's good stuff.
2: I'll uh, I'll share with you a couple of this you know might be interesting for the coaches that are listening. I'll mm-hmm. share with you at least at Ryerson, or just me at least because I'm listening. Sure, so, yeah. sure, sure. Okay, <laughs> sure. uh, yeah. um, I'll share with you at Ryerson kind of how it evolved for for us. You know, when I first took the job at Ryerson, one of the first things that I would always say to our teams and to our staff was own Toronto. Like our focus was own Toronto. We weren't worried. You know, you mentioned the, the conversation about Carlton. I wasn't worried about Carlton. I didn't really care about Carlton to be honest. Like. Carlton was not important to me. What was important to me was that we became the program in the city of Toronto, because if we'd become the program in the city of Toronto, naturally we'd become one of the programs in our country. Like it was just too much of a hoops hotbed for us not to want to win that first. So our first focus was owning Toronto. We wanted to own Toronto on the court. We wanted to own Toronto off the court. We wanted to be the coolest program in the city. We want to have all the best events in the city. We wanted to be the place where people wanted to come. It used to be Humber College for many years. Mike Cage ran a tre- tremendous kind of program coach, at Humber. Yeah. But, you know, I, I didn't want it to be Humber anymore. You know, I, I wanted it to be Ryerson. That was going to be our goal. So we started with that. And then, you know, once we got to a particular point, you know, the question marks became, okay, can they win it? Can they win it? You know, all of the kind of stuff that goes on in community and in coaching. So we came up with a uh, word and, that, and our, our identity was now. We use that word because externally, everybody thought, okay, there's a little bit of arrogance there. They now think they've arrived. They now think it's their time. They're using this word now. Well, really what now was, was an acronym for no other way, because it was a reminder for us to kind of double our commitment to our process and all of the little things that we would do defensively, whether it was two hands high on a closeout, whether it was being in the gap, whether it was deep outlets, whatever those things that we had identified there was no other way. We were going to be relentlessly committed to the things that we we agreed to. So that became the next kind of iteration of our culture was that word now. And then near the end of my time at Ryerson, probably the last three, four years, I started to use the word becoming because it was kind of my evolution as a coach as well. It really wasn't about what we were when we started was really about what we were going to become. Who were we? How are we going to celebrate that experience? How are we going to appreciate each other so that we could look at it at the end of the season and just smile and laugh and celebrate But how much we've grown. So it was really about growth as a group. Um, And that's just, you know, three, that was the evolution of our time at Rise.
1: Great, thanks for sharing that. That's good stuff. Um, Those are, no, that's great. Exactly what I want to hear. I'm sure everybody else listening wants to hear it too. So (laughs) that's good. Yeah, no, it was awesome. How did the transition to Sacramento, I know you had to you crack a couple times in, in the summer league. Is it your network? Do you sort of let people know that you're interested in the NBA? Like, I'm, they're just really intriguing because I want to kind of close out with Canada, if you don't mind, because sure. it's you know Canadian-based yeah. podcast. Yeah, but absolutely. how does one get there? And it's not, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's yeah. some crazy story about things that happened for you. You know, we had Scott Morrison on. Right. And he you knows his stories about getting with the Celtics and things like yeah, that. But yeah. Scott and I spent a lot of time together on national team staff. So I
2: was front and center and watched his path and how he went about it. And uh, mm-hmm. so I, I can just share with you that, that there is no real way. I mean mm-hmm. everybody's way is kind of different, and you gotta have some luck. Uh, you have to build some relationships. There's that's that, there's no question
1: about that. Even that won't guarantee you anything. Pause for a sec. Sure. Love it i all about relationships. I'm all about relationships. Like tell the kids we teach, like even if you meet someone and you, you know, it's just a quick acquaintance, you never know who you may have to just quickly give a call to or find an email or, you know, you volunteer one day at a rec center and you do a really good job, build that relationship. You never know. Right. And mm-hmm. thank you. I just had to pause there. It's good stuff. Free, free game right now. Free game people. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I mean, there's no question that, you know, if you're in this game long enough, you know, the people that you meet, you know, in passing sometimes and sometimes, you know, and spend a lot of time with and you know, you're going to meet them again at some point in time down the road for the most part. You just never know, you know, who they have evolved into and you can never predict who you evolve into. And and as long as it's authentic and you're really in it for
1: the right reasons, at the worst case scenario, you're going to have some great friends in the game. I think it's cool too to cut you off as a, The way you started out with your career, you're dealing with kids who basically, you're kind of like your last chance, right? Like, work with me. Let's build a relationship here so that you can continue to move on. Maybe school is not for you, but let's just get, get out of high school. Let's get out of grade 13 and see what we can do, right? So you're starting that with people who, they're probably like, F this guy, Mr. Rana. I don't even know this guy. Why is he telling me? And so you've got to find a way to connect with people right away skill that you've just used throughout your entire life, just in different ways. I find that pretty interesting. Have you ever thought of it that way? Well, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, your ability to connect with your athletes is, you know,
2: nine, 90% of, of what we do, right? So I mean, true. Uh, I think, you know, you you can, you can draw up a lot. I always say this, hey, you know, in, a, in the course of a season, and I've had a lot of different seasons now. I've had hundred game seasons. I've had, you know, 30 game seasons. You know, you'll be lucky if you can drop a couple of plays that win you a game. Right. Maybe <laughs> that happens once a season. Maybe that and we feel great, right? That that kind of for us kind of validates us as a coach. Well, what about all those other games? Like where, how are you getting that done? Right. And yeah. and if you don't have a connection with your team, you're not gonna win a lot of games. That's just that's what it is, right? And just connect with people in general in a in a in a positive way. So certainly relationships are the backbone of of a lot of what's kind of happened for me. But I would tell you that in the end, it wasn't a reason why I'm in the NBA. (laughs) But, you know, I had a lot of opportunities along the way. Um, I had a lot of opportunities to jump to the league, and I didn't do it. I probably turned down three or four opportunities in my time at Ryerson because, uh, one, I wasn't ready to leave my team. I I didn't want to leave them. I I felt kind of guilty. I felt like I wasn't in a good place. I'd committed to them, and I wasn't ready to go the opportunity didn't sit well with me. It wasn't really where I wanted to be or the timing wasn't right, but for whatever reason. And, um, you know, this, this, uh, opportunity in Sacramento really came through just a mutual connection. It was random. I, I didn't really have a relationship with Luke. And, uh, it was probably the least likely scenario of all the scenarios that i have been in. So mm-hmm. it worked out, but again, I think it's, uh, it comes down to connection. It comes down to relationships and, uh, fortunately for me, it, it worked out
1: super cool man and and proud of you and good for you and and it's 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 awesome to see a canadian being so involved and you know working with people like luke walton and and the pros of the pros right and what's that process like take us i mean obviously scott on to new things and going off to Australia, but he shared a little bit about kind of you know what his job was. What's the day to day like for an assistant coach with Sacramento Kings? Um, I, you're probably like, man, what day? When why are we on yeah, the road? It's, where are we it's home? Uh, like, it's, yeah. it's, it's. I mean, we could do a separate podcast
2: on that. Yeah, completely. Right. I mean, it's it's it, it it it's um it depends on who you work for. It depends on what organization. Depends on what the need is. Depends on where your team is and it's in it's kind of life cycle. There's so many things that are involved in, in that. You know, there a young coach, is a veteran coach, is a coach who, you know, is very very strong in the way he wants to do things, as a coach who kind of is still learning his way. Uh, so, it's different from scenario to scenario. Uh, all I would say to you is probably the most important thing is that you're uh, you're willing to serve, uh, you're open minded, and that you're you know you're loyal to the person that you work for. And I think mm-hmm. if you have those three things, you you got a chance to make a positive contribution. Hopefully, you win a lot of games because, I mean, in the end, at this level, right, I mean, it's it's all about winning and losing. There's no way else way around it, right? It's a real results-based business. Unlike in youth sport, you know, you can we're, – we're educators. We're still in that business of developing young people more so than – you know, now, I think the landscape is changing a little bit, but the pressures to win aren't the same, so – It can be challenging, that's
1: for sure. Would you like to see those pressures change in Canada a bit? Would you like to see coaches be paid to be coaches to win and lose? I mean, not obviously to the extreme, like, let's fire all these people if they don't win. But do you know know where I'm going with that? Like a little more, do you really have to be a full-time coach and teach three classes at the university or two classes to make a, a decent living or... Don't mean to put it in the spot, yeah, No,
2: I, I would tell you this. I don't think that there should be a significant change in the way coaching is delivered at the youth sport level, mm. at, at the academic level in Canada. I think there's a purity there, you know, about, about the athlete, about the student. And I would hate to see that change. I, I don't think the pressure should be about winning as much as it should be about, you know, graduation rates and, and creating great stories. I think that's how coaches should be evaluated because, in mm. fact, that's our job at that level is to help, you know, grow young people. Now, you know, there is at some point in time conversations that can be had about results and and winning and losing, but I don't think they need to be as extreme as they are. You know, if, if we're, if we're, if the kind of money's being thrown around that there is in the NCAA and we're being paid, you know, millions of dollars. You know there's tons of pressure to to perform because of that then it's a different game mm-hmm, but that's that's not our game in youth sport you know our, our game is really about creating great stories of young people and helping them grow and sure we're starting to develop more pros out of our uh, you know out of our league but that's still a minority that's not you know that's not you know maybe 20 percent the other 80 yeah. percent are about you know true you know university athletics it's it's about that so i i i think we're pretty good the way we are
1: i don't think that needs dramatic change what uh before we talk about canada i really want to touch on that experience you know with the world cup team and that gold medal i think that's probably one of the that was a fun thing to watch but what what excites you about the sacramento kings coming up
2: well i mean certainly you know some some good young talent you know continue to evolve I I think there's a, a bright future for the organization ahead, but you know, that, that young
1: talent will mature. And I think that there's a, once it matures, they're going to see some results. And let's get into that Canadian experience. I mean, you've, you've been, is there a team that you haven't been a part of? I mean, it's hard to narrow down, but, and I don't want to isolate one scenario, but that kind of, that, that U19 sort of 2017, can you just talk about that experience? How, like, what was that like as a coach and, and wearing that, maple leaf on your chest and being able to represent yeah. your country on the biggest stage for that age group must have been super fun
2: yeah it was uh easily the most challenging experience of any of my national team experiences why is that you know it was it was a super challenging summer because first and foremost we had probably 10 guys that were missing from that team and i'd say eight of them are now either in the nba or uh, are uh touch the NBA and out of the NBA. So we had a lot of guys that decided not to play for a lot of different reasons. So that put a lot of stress on me because I was spending so much time trying to recruit them, trying to convince them, trying to, you know, figure out why. And, you know, it was, it was a we we basically, and this is no, no uh, knock on the group that we took to Cairo, but it was not our first or our second group. It was really a mixture of, you know, RJ Barrett, Lindell Wiggington, Abu Kijab. And then there was a lot of guys that we could have said, okay, would they have made the team? Would they have not? It was our depth. It was our, that really kind of got us through there. So just trying to build that team was incredibly challenging and just super taxing. I was dealing with phone calls the night before we were leaving for Cairo with guys that might not be able to play and, you know, parents and coaches and, you know, it just, all of that stuff that was just really, really exhausting. So just the fact that we were you know, trying to get on the court was, trying to put a good team on the court was a challenge. (laughs) And then we, you know, we get to Cairo and we had a bunch of security issues. So basically because of the, you know, the threat of terrorism and some of the things that were going on at the time, uh, we were in a bubble, really. We were kind of in quarantine. We were kind of in lockdown in the hotel in Cairo. It was a long tournament. It was about three weeks. And that was incredibly challenging for our guys, right? They they were just stuck in the hotel the whole time. We basically get on a bus, go to the gym, come back. We couldn't go for a walk you couldn't go, you know, we had one trip to the pyramids. That was the only thing that we did. And that was with, you know, heavy security We you were in and out. And these so are, that kids, was right. Yeah. These are 17 year old kids. Right. So th- this was, <laughs> this was a challenge for them to be in their hotel rooms for three weeks. And that was a challenge. And then, you know, we start the tournament and we lose uh, a pool game to Spain early on. And now we know that, okay, well, you know, the only chance we have to, to play for a medal is to go through the U S in a crossover game and, you know, we had a lot of angry young guys and guys were pissed. And, you know, I thought we were, we were coming apart. We had to take a lot of time to build that team back together and bring, bring that trust back together while we were in Cairo. And, um, you know, we found a way we came together at the right time. You know, we had an incredible win against France in the quarterfinal. You know, the quarter has always been the most challenging game for us because, you know, usually you're going to play in a world cup or in a world championship. You're going to play a really good European team. And you know, it's going to come down to the wire. It's going to come down to possessions. And we had some heartbreak over the last two World Cups. We lost to a great Croatia team that had, you know, five NBA players on it. And we had lost to a, a great Spanish team that had five NBA players on it now that are in the NBA from those teams in the previous two World Cups. And then, you know, we play uh, we play France, again, loaded, find a way to beat them, and now we've got the U.S. in the semi. And um, we just played the perfect game. Like, you know, we were we, – we the game plan was – the, the guys went out. They committed to it. They executed it. You know, we had some pretty spectacular individual performances. All the things that needed to line up for us lined up. And we got a historic win against the U.S. and John Calipari is a friend of mine. You know, I'd gotten to know him quite well. I'd spent some time in Kentucky with him. That was a little bit bittersweet. You know, as much as, as good as it was to win that game, you know, I knew kind of what it meant for him in the U.S. But still, it was a tremendous win. And then we went on and we kind of knew we were just in a great place. We knew we were going to beat Italy. And, uh, you know, I think probably the only thing that was kind of surreal about it was just hearing how much buzz it was getting back home, right? It just kind of yeah. started to snowball. It just, it, I often, people often tell me it was kind of like, uh, you know, one of the uh, the women's soccer teams as one of those age group soccer teams started to go on their roll and how the country started to get behind them. We, we didn't get a chance to experience that because we were in the tournament. But everything that I heard about being what was going on back home was that there was just this incredible groundswell of support from not just basketball people, but just from Canadians in general. So that was a very,
1: very cool summer for sure. And obviously, you know, a big, big moment in my career. Yeah, I think probably too when you, for the casual fan or the non-fan, once they see or hear, oh, they beat the U.S. in the semi, it's like, whoa, okay. You know what i mean yeah, it's not yeah. like oh they're about to play the us in the semi and then that fair weather fans like ah here we go you know but right. it's like damn they beat them well now i need to like what's this all about right and uh super yeah,
2: and cool. we, we had been we had been knocking on the door like we had you know i uh, we've lost to the us and cuba america the summer before and i had uh, you know Shea alexander and alexander o'shea brissette on that team and we had lost you know, down the stretch was a four-point game we lost in Valdavia to, you know, they had Michael Porter Jr., and Mar- Markel, folks, they were loaded. And um, Shea didn't play in that game. Lindell didn't play in that game. They were injured. And then those guys, Shea and McKeel and O'Shea didn't play the next summer when we went to the World Cup, even though they were eligible. Mm-hmm. So we were knocking on the door. We were getting closer and closer every summer. So it wasn't like we were walking in there thinking this is like the miracle on ice. Like right. we were walking <laughs> onto the court knowing that, you know, th- this was these were
1: going to be winnable games for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we finally broke through. It's amazing, too, sometimes you just get a special group, right? Like with all that adversity and things you're going through, you get two of the wrong guys in the mix they can turn things upside down but you get people that are bought in they're able to fight through some frustration throughout the tournament and you know and, and sometimes you win that semi and you're right you talked about that you're like we won the semi we're like now nah, we know the final is not gonna be an issue which is an interesting point yeah corbs you got a question for coach before we you mind if we we're gonna put you through the lightning round for some fun questions before we let you sure. go is that cool all
0: right no I was just reading an interview of uh, Jermaine Smalls, someone who you uh-huh. coached at Eastern, right? And how yeah. he's the uh, University of Lethbridge head coach. And he was the CEBL Edmonton Stingers yeah. coach and people around your circle, like Jessica Roque, who reached out to you and kind of did what you were doing, just reaching out to NBA coaches, trying to, to get a spot on a summer league bench and see what an NBA bench is like with the talk about the golden age of, I guess, Canada basketball in terms of guys like Shea and RJ and stuff with... Triano and Nash and Scott Jamma and yourself, is it also the golden age of Canadian coaches as well?
2: Ooh. Well, uh, yeah. One, I would tell you that, uh, you know, we, I think this golden age of Canadian basketball is a little bit, it's, it, for me, it's a little bit overblown, you know, because every you know year becomes the golden, when does it stop? Like, exactly. this has been going on for 10 years already, right? So I think it's just a new normal. I don't think it's a golden age. I think this is who we are as a basketball country now, you know? the only difference now is that we've, we've got to have, you know, a great result on the international level to kind (laughs) of validate it. I mean, that's the only thing that's missing now. Right. And as far as Canadian coaches are concerned, I mean, I think it's probably a time where Canadian coaches are getting a lot more attention than they ever have, but you know, we can't take away from, you know, some of the guys that you've had on this podcast, right. I mean, Ken Shields, Don Horwood, Steve Kachalski, you know, Jay Triano. I mean, you name it. There, there's there, the golden age of coaching. Canada's always had incredible coaches, you know, but we're Canada. So we've kind of been hidden. And now as uh, the profile of our players has risen, you know, some of our coaches, myself included, have been able to benefit from that, right? We've been able to kind of shine in the light that they've created. So I, I don't think it's a golden age of coaching. I just think that, you know, we're benefiting from the the, the shine of our players and we're getting a little bit more, you know, opportunities to kind of share our stories. And, you know, hopefully we have this incredible wave of younger coaches coming from behind us that, that can do even more special things.
1: Yeah. Finally, the benefits of social media too, right. And just sort of, you know, like you talked about clinics, like you can just hop on and it's almost overwhelming how much Chris Oliver can show you in, in, you know, one session. Right. And so just right. being able to see what you're all about without actually having to fly to TDOT to sit down with a clinic or have a coffee with you in person. Like we can learn just through a zoom, you know, and right. make a very good point there. Yeah. So then how does a how does a guy from, from the dot end up coaching for Germany of all places?
2: Uh, well, you know what I, I um, you know, I've coached pretty well players from all over the world in the Nike group summit as the world. Mm-hmm. I've had, I've had Embiid, I've had Towns, I've had Sarich, I've had uh, Ben Simmons, I had Dennis Schroeder. And uh, when Dennis came to us, he was completely unknown, and uh, Dennis had a great experience. You know, I started him. He was he was almost dominant in, a, in a, on the team with Dante Exum and Andrew Wiggins. We, we beat the U.S. I think at one point we were beating them by thirty. It was one of the best wins I've had in in my time as uh, the world team coach. And Dennis and I stayed in touch, like I do with many of my Hoop summit alum. And he was uh, he encouraged me to meet Henrik Rodel, who was the head coach of the German national team at the time. He had known Dennis. knew that my time with with Canada was. Was kind of done you know it was, it was moving in a different program was moving in a different direction and uh he encouraged me to reach out to henrik rodel and i did and probably the thing that tipped the uh, the scale even more was one our conversation about culture like that was a big big part of what was he wanted to build in germany and, and especially going into this olympic qualifier but two was the fact that you know two canadian players were of his icons or his, you know, kind of rocks in Trier when he coached professionally was Jermaine Anderson and Jermaine Buckner, who both I had coached and been around for a long time. So we had a lot of real mutual relationships, uh, who spoke highly of me. And then I got to know, you know, Henrik over probably the last year, year and a half, and it just it just fit. And he asked me if I would come on board and and take on the defense and, and also help him build out the culture. And we did and we had this incredible run uh with a team that really nobody expected to get to the olympics we were probably the fourth ranked team in our olympic qualifying tournament you know rolled through that undefeated and then went to the quarterfinal olympics so it was, it was just a complete out of the blue you know this team just kind of really matched up what we had so it was a lot of fun and again i mean should i didn't even never thought i'd be the coach at ryerson Thinking
1: about being in germany <laughs> in the olympics so yeah coaching for germany in tokyo like what yes. yeah 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 so cool so cool All right, a few more questions for you. This has been super awesome and, and very thankful for your time, knowing you're a busy man these days. Let's get right into it right off the bat. Who who in your mind, I mean, you talked about seeing the poster, but who's your GOAT? Who's the GOAT to you? Greatest player of all time. You know what? I I, I mean, just again, from from everything that I've watched,
2: um, I, I would probably say there's it's a tie right now between LeBron and Jordan. Mm-hmm. And I think if LeBron can win another title, then he may leapfrog him but you know jordan's dominance in his time and be able to do what he did uh, was pretty spectacular but you know lebron's ability to to really kind of dominate in certain areas that that jordan couldn't Mm -hmm. especially on the glass and his physicality and the size i think those two guys are, are you know for me are just head to head just beyond everybody else and then we'll go from there so i'd say jordan and lebron
1: I got a soft spot for you right away when you talked about the Showtime Lakers because Magic's my favorite ever. So, yeah, yeah, so I knew, yeah. I Kareem's mine. Although I love I know. Magic too, but I, knew, I just knew it'd be a would be a good interview yeah, because you know, we great. had that right away. Yeah. Um, yes, how do you feel about ketchup on macaroni?
2: I, I I'm not, I'm not a fan.
1: I'm not a fan of ketchup and macaroni. For me, it's uh,
2: olive oil and some Parmesan. You know, I grew up with a lot of Italians. Okay, so um,
1: that that's what I would do. But there if you I had go. to choose something, yeah. All right, I like that remix. Who are some of the greatest? Now, it's always hard for coaches. Maybe let's do it this way. Instead of some of the greatest players you've coached, because I know everyone's worried about leaving people out and you've, who haven't you coached? Who are some players that you've coached against where you've been like, man, there are a few that stick out that were just really tough to handle.
2: Yeah, I would tell you that, I, I mean, it's it's
1: changed a lot now that I've been in the NBA, but mm-hmm. um, when I
2: was a uh, AAU coach, I would tell you it was Tyreek Evans because all I did was all game long yell, don't let him go right, don't let him go right. And we would shade him left and he would still go right and he scored like 40. <laughs> and I think he had like 25 right-hand layups, even though we tried to shade him left every time. He was unbelievable as a, a youth He player. was a man. Yeah, and then, um, you know, Steph Curry this year was my scout in Golden State he completely warps the defense in ways that any other player i've never seen just because of his ability to shoot with a range which is unreal and then also you know he just never stops moving he never stops cutting i mean he can he can finish at the rim i mean he just he puts so much stress on your defense i i've never seen anything like him you know like i think people watch him in a warm-up and are in awe well he's no different in a game i mean it's just that's just who he is so i mean there's so many um nice. But those are the ones that come
1: fresh in my mind because of the, what they did to us. His step's fitness level too, right? Like the ability to constantly move and, like, yeah, yeah. he's he's not normal. That's he's a tough not, scout, he's hey? Not he's not normal. He's that's not a normal. late. That's a late night in the hotel on the road trying yes, to get is. that scout ready. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. absolutely. um Are you big music guy? I mean, I listen to music, but I'm not really. you know, I don't play any instruments or like that. No, no, no. Okay, so then if you if you have the choice, any artist, dead or alive, one concert, you can take whoever you want. Best seat in the house. Who are you going to see?
2: I would probably go back to see him again because mm-hmm. this is uh, was James Brown. I feel good. So, Ooh, um, you got to see. Him. <laughs> I got a chance to see James Brown live in a in a nightclub in Toronto, and it was what. Uh, I think I sweated as much as he did on yeah. stage. It was, it was that kind of night.
1: Yeah. I love it. Wow. That's amazing. Um, do you read much? I do. I read a ton. Yeah.
2: What's
1: a What's a book that, and it can be doesn't have to be coaching or leadership or culture, just a book to you that stands out, whether all time or something you recently read that you could throw out to the listeners that maybe they'd... Uh, Pick up yeah, I would, up. I
2: would tell you that um, probably. And I always say this is probably one of the best books I've read. That for me, it was really about probably. And I always say this is probably one of the best books I've read. That for me, it was really about you know the mental side of sport. You could you could call it a sports psychology book if you want, which is uh, in a in a weird way. But it's uh, it's open. It's and Andre Agassi's yes. autobiography, and I, I loved it. I thought it was just incredible how isn't it um, wild how honest he was you know and how much oh. he really opened up and and how incredibly tough tennis is from a mental perspective and uh for him to be able to do what he did after you know going through all the things that he did was, was pretty spectacular
0: producer Corbs here the question that mitch asked and part of coach Rana's answer got cut off so the question was who have been the most important people in your life and coach Rana starts talking about his mother
2: she was really the backbone of my, uh, you know, I grew up with my mom, most pretty well a single parent home for mm-hmm. most of my life. So she was the backbone of the foundation. And then, you know, I've shared Coach Raveling, George Raveling at Nike, and, you know, was the former coach at USC. So a Hall of Famer. He's been a huge, huge part of my growth, you know, and then, you know, th- those two are probably the ones that come off uh, that been the most impactful. And obviously my family is, you know, a huge part of what I do as well.
1: Absolutely. You get off the plane from Tokyo, you gather yourself, get over the jet lag, you allow yourself a couple days to chill out and you're like, man, I really need like a bag of chips. You go to the store and you grab what?
2: I'm not really a chip guy, but if I was, I'd probably just like sea salt, just something pretty standard. Nothing too funky, you know,
1: just uh, enjoy that. So if you're snacky then what are you going for? Are you more chocolate are you are you just avoid it all? Don't yeah, tell me. I'm more, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm more yes. of the sweets for sure. Okay. I got a little
2: okay. bit of sweet tooth. But yep. the reality is, is that if I'm, you know, for me it's it's all about the espresso. Just keep bring keep bringing <laughs> yeah. the
1: espresso. Just keep the coffee rolling in and I'm good. Just keep the heart the heart rate up, huh? That's right. That's right. I, lo- I love it. I love it. Um Corbs, you have one more question for coach.
0: I want you to finish the sentence, coach. The best place to eat in Blue Dale Village is
2: it's a new spot. It's called Sugo. It's an Italian spot. Yes. Yeah, Sugo. It's an Italian spot uh, just on the kind of the south side, closer to Lansdowne that I think is, uh, it's got lineups now. It's hard to get in there, but but if you can get in there, it's pretty good.
0: Because I have a buddy of mine who's moving into that neighborhood and I was doing research for uh, for your, for the show. I know you, you grew up there, so yeah. yeah. That's why I'll give a shout out to my boy. Uh, yeah, let him know. Let him know to get there early because he's going to have to wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just name
1: drop coach. Just name drop coach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Last question, my friend, and thanks for being with us. Um, you have still got lots of coaching ahead of you, and and some great things. And hopefully, when COVID drops, you know, my big our big goal here would be to have a hoops journey coaching clinic, and maybe you'd be open to coming out west and and uh, sharing your knowledge with some people. But up to this point, if you could do it all again, you would what?
2: Whew. Wow. Try to enjoy it more. You know. I spent so much time focusing in on the next thing and you know the next win and trying to be ready for the next thing. That uh, I don't I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I could have. You know I don't think I took the, the joy in some of those moments as a high school coach and some of those moments as coach at Ryerson that that maybe early on. I think I got better later in my career at at Ryerson, but I, I would have probably liked to have taken some more time and enjoyed it more
1: a great last reflection i think important whether you're a coach or whatever you do just try to enjoy things as, as things move along right because life moves quickly and yeah i'm sure you feel that yeah any last reflections before you get on your way and, and again thank you for your time i wish you continued success with sacramento this year we'll be watching and um, thanks for being part of a hoops journey but anything before we let you go no just uh
2: you know um i think what you're doing is is needed, and I just share that because I think one of the things that we've done a really poor job of in our country is tell stories, tell stories of basketball, tell stories of teams, tell stories of players, tell stories of coaches, and as much as this is an uh, as a, a podcast, you're also archiving some history. And I've had a chance to listen to a couple of episodes before we did this and learned a lot of things, and so I, I commend you guys, and, and uh, just keep doing what you're doing. It, it's a It's a really important thing for Canadian basketball.
1: Thanks. We appreciate that. We feel the same. And, um, and, you know, we've had a couple, I mean, coach Rich Goulet, I don't know if you ever had a chance to meet him and he unfortunately passed away. And now there's an archive and people can go, they want to hear his raspy voice where, you know, they got yelled at him when they were a player that it's there forever. Right. And we appreciate those words and, um, you know, send us those contacts or people that you think would be a great guest on the show. Definitely. Um, And uh, I
2: will, uh, I will, uh, I will help any way I can.
1: Shout out to Parkside Brewery, Good Lad Clothing. Go back and re-listen to this one with your notebook because Coach, full of knowledge, and we wish you nothing but the best. We'll see you on the next episode.